Hey everyone, this is Lee from the UK. Big fan of anything 70s and 80s and an even bigger fan of the Surely podcast. Brilliant content that's perfectly delivered. Keep up the amazing work, guys. Thank you. All right, everybody, it's the podcast that is the only thing in the world that can drag you away from the soft glow of electric sex gleaming in the window. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Surely fans, I'd like to wish you a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Dee. Merry Christmas, Jason. Thanks, man. I'm so excited. We've come to the end of our second season. We're finishing off with Christmas movies, but it is the season to be jolly, and I'm just I'm relishing in all of this Christmas bliss. I know, man. We've had a great year two. Yeah. I'm excited about year three, but let's cap year two with two of the greatest Christmas movies ever made. Yeah. Two Christmas movies about young boys like us back in the 80s and 90s who faced troubles but ended up having a Merry Christmas after all. Let's do it. So we're going to talk today about Home Alone. Yep. 1990. Yes. And A Christmas Story, 1983. Right. Did you see either of these in the theater? Um, I know that I saw Home Alone in the theater. 100% sure I saw it in the theater. And I may have seen it a couple times in the theater. It was one of those things like Crocodile Dundee where it was just there and stayed there and was there and there and there and kept being there. So I'm pretty sure I saw it at least twice in the theater. A Christmas Story, I was pretty young when that one came out. I know that I remember seeing it on VHS. I know that I remembered seeing it quite a bit before it became the TNT 24-hour marathon. Right. Which... I think we're in year 24 of that this year. I think it has 97. Yeah. So this is the year 24 that you're going to get 24 hours of a Christmas story. They play it 12 times in a row. And I I'll sit there and I'll watch it. I'll watch it. I I mean, it's it's just on while you're doing your Christmas stuff, but my gosh, it's wonderful. And because it's in vignettes, you can pick it up here and there and drop it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about that. So you and I talked on the phone yesterday about how these two movies are so similar to other movies. And so I said, you know, a Christmas story doesn't necessarily have like a real plot to it. I mean, it's got kind of an arc of he's wanting the BB gun, but it's really just a bunch of vignettes which is basically the same thing as A Christmas Vacation, National Lampoon, A Christmas Vacation. It is the arc of he wants a swimming pool and then a bunch of vignettes that go along with that family in the house. That's right. That's right. And then you pointed out that Home Alone is really... It's Die Hard for Kids. It's Die Hard for Kids. I mean, there are there are a few select plot lines in the library that you can pick from, but these are definitely both dude with a problem. Right. Plot lines. Yes. But it goes beyond that. It does. Do you want to talk about that now or do you want to save that for later? No, let's talk about it now. Okay. So let's talk about the similarities between Home Alone and Die Hard. Okay. Yeah. So these are the exact same movies, just flipped once for adults and once for kids. Right? Yeah. The beats are pretty similar. <laughs> the first similarity in these two movies, the bad guy, Hans Gruber and Harry, the burglar, they both pretend to be good guys. Yeah. Like, Hans Gruber is a guy who works in the building, right? That's what he's pretending to be, Bill Clay. And then Joe Pesci's at the very beginning of the movie pretending to be a cop. Oh, God. 
You're not one of them, are you? Because <laughs> he spoke Californian. Check out our <laughs> Die Hard versus Lethal Weapon podcast from last year. One of our best series of podcasts. Yeah, I love that one. Okay, what else you got? Okay, so close to the end of the movie, both of those same two guys have a amazing and incredibly painful looking fall. <laughs> Straight back. <laughs> that right? is very true. That is very true. Hans Gruber falls to his death. Gee, I hope that's not one of the hostages. And Joe Pesci steps on the slick steps and does the most painful looking knock the breath out of you back splash into the concrete. Those stuntmen did not get paid enough on Home Alone. No. Here's the other thing. At the very end of the movie, who comes to the rescue? Somebody from left field, right? Right. You've got Al. Who's... Sergeant Al Powell shows up at just the right time, pulls his gun to blow away Kyle. And also you've got old man Marley who shows up with a snow shovel. Yep. Another fantastic hit. (laughs) Straight out of Looney Tunes, man. Sure enough. Both movies end with an embrace of somebody who they've been trying to reunite with for the entire movie. You have John reuniting with Holly, and then you have Kevin reuniting with his mom. It's all very beautiful. I'll tell you this one. And if you look closely at this one, you're going to be like, wow, did John Hughes really watch Die Hard and then copy beat for beat? So you remember when John McClane first sees Hans come in with Mr. Takagi, right? Mr. Takagi, yes. Where's he hiding? John McClane? Yes. Under the table. Under the table. And the first time we see the bad guys in Home Alone, what does Macaulay Culkin do? What does Kevin do? He runs upstairs and hides hides under under the bed. It is the same perspective. Little crouched down, hidden underneath the bed instead of underneath the table. Hey, I'll tell you another similarity. Yeah. Both movies have guys picking glass out of their feet. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yes. That's hilarious. Although Marv does not say all things being equal, he'd rather be in Philadelphia. Yeah. Okay. And then, of course, the thing that I think I pointed out to you before we even like really started diving into this, you have two fantastic scenes, both movies. Bad guy gets shot in the crotch. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Next time you have a chance to shoot someone, don't hesitate. Thanks for the advice. <laughs> <laughs> these movies are great. I can't wait to dive into these. I actually did see both of these in the theater. Uh-huh. I saw A Christmas Story when I was a fifth grader. Okay. I have vivid memories of seeing it because it was one of the greatest movie watching experiences I've ever had. Okay. Okay. Now I'm going to say the same thing for Home Alone because both times I saw this, I laughed my butt off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, as a fifth grader though, watching Randy snort mashed potatoes <laughs> was like the epitome of humor for me. Right. Oh my gosh. It was I, so gross. I was like hyperventilating in the movie theater. So I, I have wonderful memories of seeing these in movie theater. Uh, I think I've said, I think I said last year that Die Hard was my greatest movie watching experience. And I'd say that, you know, Raiders, E.T., but Christmas Story was up there for me. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Amazing. All right, guys, let's take a quick break. We're going to intro a new podcast out there right now. Yeah. Plan your work and work your plan. For many athletes, saying such as this could be considered scripture, permanent signposts, lining the long road to success in sports. For some, the very act of pursuing a career in sports can give you a sense of control, a sense of safety, so long as you stick to the plan. That is, until life happens. The kind of life that happens while you're making other plans. Breakdowns, insecurity, panic attacks, PTSD, addiction, sudden life changes, ones that require an athlete to toss aside their well-laid plans and answer the question, 
What's Your Next Play? Blindsided is a podcast about sports, mental health, and life. Hosted by former NHL goalie Corey Hirsch and psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh, the podcast will share and analyze the moments for a variety of athletes when everything changed for them and what happened when it did. The podcast lets listeners hear the athletes describe moments when mental health became the most important focus of their lives. Blindsided then dives deeper. It gets clinical and it allows listeners to leave with an understanding of the different varieties of mental health challenges people face, why they appear, and how athletes in particular face them down. Blindsided is a sports podcast, not only for people who follow sports, but also for those who don't. All right, guys, go check out Blindsided. Okay, let's look back at the history and see how these two amazing films came to be. Okay, sounds good. All right, so we'll start with A Christmas Story. It was the oldest of the two, right? Yes. And you can see opening credits. It is based on the stories of Gene Shepard. The book he had was called In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. But really, it's from some of those stories from that book, but also a series of stories that he did in a a speaking engagement that he would do from college campus to college campus. This guy... His whole life he spent in radio and TV doing these short stories. He's got an entrancing voice, you know. He He is the best narrator, my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned those stories that he had published. You know where they typically were published? No. Playboy magazine. Nice. (laughs) It doesn't seem very... Fitting for, for the articles. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So one particular day in the late 60s, a young man named Robert Clark. Mr. Bob Clark. Bob Clark was uh, driving around in his car. He was going about to go out on a date. And he catches a radio show where it's Gene Shepard telling this story. And he's like, what is this? this is like a kid sticking his tongue to a light pole? Yeah. This is this is interesting. And so he like he's like, oh, I'll circle the block and hear the rest of the story uh-huh. instead of picking up his date. So he circles the block and then again, and then 45 <laughs> minutes later, the story is finally over and his girl isn't there waiting for him. <laughs> it, that girl can go because he gave us a Christmas story. So that planted the seed. Late 60s, Bob Clark is like, I want to take this story and these other stories and make them into a movie. And so he hits up Gene Shepard and Gene Shepard's like, who are you? He's right. Like, well, I work in the film industry in Miami. And he's like, what movies? He's like, I don't really have any <laughs> movies yet. Uh, and so not interested, not interested. Right. What happens is that Bob Clark keeps pressuring him, keeps wanting to do these movies and continues to develop his career. He ends up going up to Canada, right? Because it's a tax haven at this time. Right. And he starts making movies in Canada. So in the early seventies, he starts making, as you would expect, horror movies, right? Everybody starts off with horror movies. They're cheap and they're easy. Right. He's His first one's called Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. He's got Death Dream. He's got Black Christmas. And Black Christmas ends up being a pretty big hit. It's got Margot Kidder in it before she's Superman famous. But it's a slasher flick. And this is 74. So it kind of inspires things like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. And he becomes kind of a big fish in a little pond up there in Canada. Another one of the movies that he did is this movie called Moon Runners. Yeah. which is about moonshine runners. Okay. It ended up being the source material for a TV show you might've heard of called 
the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> oh my gosh, are you serious? Yes, yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. So they he was involved with that. He's obviously, you know, he was a part of that in, in 2005 when they re-released the Dukes of Hazard, the new version with Jessica Simpson. And yeah, yeah. Oh, he sued him. He he and a bunch of other people sued oh. him and won the case right before the movie came out. But it was a that was a big deal. Really? Yeah. And then in 1981, he ends up doing this movie that everybody knows from the early 80s. I did a post on Facebook and I'm like, what's the first rated R movie that you ever saw? And this was the number one response. Yeah. Yeah. Porky's. Yep. I've never seen Porky's. D. Have you seen Porky's? You've never seen I've Porky's? I've never seen Porky's. No. Yes. I've seen Porky's. I Like my friend Mark Mingle, I was way too young in 1980. One to see R-rated movies. Well, we had a satellite and my parents would go out <laughs> and eating, so there you go. Okay. So at this point, he's become pretty dang famous. I mean, Porky's was huge in 1981. And so he's like, hey, I want to finally do my Gene Shepard story of the kid who wants a Red Ryder BB gun movie. And the studios are still like, no, narration is dead. We don't want to have a narrated what? story. So they turn him down. They turn him down. And finally, he gets just a little bit of a budget. And he says, listen, I will forego my standard director's fee if you'll just put a little bit more of the movie. And they end up making this movie for less than $5 million. It's insane. $3.3 million uh, released November 18th, 1983. Hey, I've got something on Bob Clark for you. Okay, okay, yeah, go ahead. So Bob Clark, after he did Christmas Story, he went on to do the fantastic movie called Rhinestone. <laughs> Dolly Parton and Sylvester Stallone Spit take <laughs> uh, He also did Turk 182 From the Hip Some other movies like that But yeah. I will tell you this He did From the Hip? He did From the Hip Oh, that's a great one That's um, that's David E. Kelly's first script Made into a movie David oh. E. Kelly Who did The Practice Who did L.A. Law Who did Boston Legal Who did Ally McBeal Yeah, I yeah. mean, he's a big Big time. And you know, nine, Nelson, yeah. nine perfect strangers. Yeah. So awesome. Okay. So I got a little tidbit for you on Bob Clark. Okay. Okay. Bob Clark has the distinction of being one of only two directors uh-huh. to have a movie on both Roger Ebert's great movies list and most hated list. Oh, okay. Okay. Bob Clark's, of course, was Christmas story. He's on the greatest movies list. Right. Do you know the other one? Um, I'm going to go with baby geniuses too. Baby Geniuses. Uh, yeah, I didn't see that one. Baby Geniuses, Baby no. Geniuses 2. I don't know. Okay. It doesn't matter. They're both terrible. You know who the other director is? Uh, no. Who? Rob Reiner. Rob. Meathead. Okay. So Rob Reiner, is it Stand By Me or is it Princess Bride? It's it's Princess Bride. Okay. That's the best one. That's what's the, the best one. What's and the worst one? North with Elijah Wood. I haven't seen that movie. I haven't either. Well, all right. Apparently, we're not, apparently we're not missing it. <laughs> Although you can't you can't always know from good taste because Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel both thumbs down on Home, Home Alone, Alone, right? It's crazy. It is nuts. It is nuts. They're like it's old tired formula, right? Like they took they took Die Hard and they just made it a kid, right? <laughs> they but didn't like it. So wrong. So, so wrong. He ends up going to college and then gets a scholarship to play football and is a quarterback. He was a scholarship quarterback in college. Really? Yeah. Wow. So Bob Clark finally gets to make his movie. It's released in 1983. It has minimal success, but ultimately develops a cult following. Well, 
we know from our prior episode that a young man was living in an apartment near the time that a Christmas story came out that had little mice who would run across his fingers as he slept in the the tenement house that he was in. This led to him writing a script for a movie about little critters that invaded a house that he called Gremlins. That's right. Chris Columbus wrote Gremlins. Right. So Chris Columbus gets that script in in front of Steven Spielberg. Joe Dante is signed to direct and Chris Columbus gets to come out and be a part of the production. You'll remember from our Gremlins episode that I said he was super excited about meeting Hoyt Axton, not because Hoyt Axton had written all of these wonderful songs or because he was a great actor, but because his mom had written an incredibly famous Elvis song called... Heartbreak Hotel. Hotel. Yes. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street, that Heartbreak Hotel around me. Wow. And so, sure enough, a little bit later on, Chris Columbus gets to direct his own movie, which is what he wanted to do. He It's looked at as he's the new John Hughes. He directs this movie called... Adventures in Babysitting. Adventures in Babysitting. Elizabeth Shue... Oh my, one of my childhood crushes for sure. Yeah. And then he goes on and directs another movie, which is called Heartbreak Hotel. Yes. And it does. Yeah. <laughs> it, it craps the pot. It, it really does. does. Yeah. It does. It does not do well at all. And he thought his directing career was over. Yeah. He thought, well, one and done. You know, like I had my chance. I got that big hit and then I lost it with Heartbreak Hotel. Well, it helps to have powerful friends because John Hughes called him and said, I've got a project I want you to direct for me. Yeah. And he's like, oh, fantastic. What is it? It's a Christmas story about the Griswolds. Yeah. Otherwise known as Christmas Vacation. It's that time. Christmas time is here. Everybody knows there's not a better time of year. Yeah. So he reads the script. He's like, oh, this is great. I'd love to. I love Christmas movies. Yes. I'd love to be a part of this. So he shows up, starts working, talking to the stars. And there's one particular person who became so insufferable that he had to bail out. Yeah. Chevy Chase basically treated him like crap. He's like, you don't know what you're doing. And Chevy, we've talked about Chevy Chase's ability to get along with other human beings. <laughs> And Chris Columbus didn't know what to do. I mean, he's like, he he was disregarding everything I would say. He didn't respect me. There was just nothing I could do. And he, so he calls up John Hughes and he doesn't even have to say the words. John Hughes is like, you know what? I don't think this is the right movie for you. I've got another one that you might be interested in. It's incredible. So Chris Columbus gets a big break to do the National Lampoon Christmas Vacation movie. Next thing he knows, he's out. But... John Hughes in the week gap there. There's one week. One week. He wrote two scripts. Yep. One of which was this little project called Home Alone. Yeah. And he hands it to Chris Columbus and says, I want you to, to direct this one. So this part, this blew my mind. The way John Hughes worked, he would start writing on a Friday night and he would have a script finished by Sunday morning. Like polished. Yeah. Done. Like it's done. Yeah. And it's not just a script. It's Breakfast Club. <laughs> it's 16 Candles. It's, weird, it's science. weird science. I mean, what? He would just crank it out in a couple of days. And 
it was known like when John Hughes showed up for the filming part of things, you didn't deviate from the script because John Hughes was like, um, the words that are perfect are the words that I wrote down. So you don't change those words <laughs> unless you're John Candy. And right. he had so much respect for John Candy. He was like, just let him let him riff and it's going to be gold. You know, it's interesting because I did hear Chris Columbus say that when an actor deviated from the script, yeah. John Hughes's ear would perk up and be like, um, no, we're going to do it my way. Yeah. Okay. So he had directed John Candy in both Planes, Trains and Automobiles and in Uncle Buck. Those are two of John Candy's best roles. Absolutely. Ab. Absolutely. Maybe best. Yeah. I mean, and he wrote The Great Outdoors, which is another one of John Candy's yeah. greatest movies. Now, that's interesting. He wrote movies, but he didn't direct them all, right? He didn't really like the directing part. I think he liked it okay, but he's just, he was so prolific as a writer. I don't think he had time. I mean, from, just to hear this, from 1984 here we go. 1984, 16 Candles. 1985, The Breakfast Club. 1985, Weird Science. 1986, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. 1987, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. 1988, She's Having a Baby. 1989, Uncle Buck. I mean, in that short of a time period, he was cranking them out. I don't think he could have possibly directed all of the scripts that he was writing because he was busy enough directing the ones that he had. That, there is not a bad movie in that list right there. Well, the last one on the list came out in 91, and that's Curly Sue. Well, the 90s were a different story for John Hughes. It was. It was a different story. We can get into that a little bit. Okay. So Chris Columbus comes on to, re to direct this movie called Home Alone, right? Yes. And as with all movies, you have to get a budget for the movie. And John Hughes calls up the guys at Warner Brothers and he says, hey, I got this movie. They're like, okay, tell us about it. And he says, ah, okay, kid at Home Alone. All right. How much? Uh, $10 million. If you can make that movie for $10 million, you can do it. Right. And that's what they said. Yeah. So they go. Where else are they going to go with a John Hughes movie? Chicago. Chicago suburbs. And they set up shop. They set up their back lot at the same high school that they filmed Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And Uncle Buck. It was called the New Trier School. The school had been shut down. And so they set up offices. They set up all of the sets. And they got to work. It's kind of interesting. So the school basically ran out of students, I guess. The neighborhood matured and there weren't any young kids anymore. Mm -hmm. And so they could set up the art department in, you know, like the math area, right. you know, and the production part in the English area. And right. they had it all kind of right there. And they had a giant gymnasium with rafters that you could hang lights from. It's the perfect place for a back lot setup, right? Yep. Now, everybody knows that beautiful house that they have for Kevin's family, right? Yes. There's yes. all kinds of memes like, I want to know what Kevin's dad did for a living to be able to afford this house. <laughs> right. Because it's gorgeous. Yes. But they only really did the exterior shots they, because the house is a house. You can't set up and film and get all your lighting in a house. And so basically they recreated all of the important interior shots from the house in that gymnasium, except for when they had to do the flood scenes. Right. The flood scenes, they had to build the house again in the, like the empty pool in the high school, Olympic sized pool. Yeah. I mean, if you watch the end scene, the wet bandits have caused flooding and the water's going everywhere. And they're like, how are we going to do this? Where's the water going to go? And then they're wandering around the school and they come into a building and it's the old pool. And they're like, 
It's perfect. Let's just pour water into the house and let it hit the pool. Yeah, the pool's got a drain. Yep. Okay, so we've wandered into production a little bit here. Why don't we jump back to A Christmas Story and talk casting? Okay, so there's some interesting people that were considered for roles in A Christmas Story. Right. They literally had thousands of people try out for the part of Ralphie Parker, right? Yes, Ralphie Parker. The very first one that tried out, Peter Billingsley. Right. Who, at the time, was kind of an established actor. He had been in quite a few commercials, and he was a part of this TV show called Real People. Right. And so, hey, here's a kid who's, you know, he's got experience. He knows what he's doing. Seems like the obvious choice. But then they went ahead and auditioned several thousand other kids anyway. They thought he was too famous to be Ralphie in this movie. Right. Which is crazy. You remember the Hershey's syrup commercials, right? I do. Yeah. I do. Which is kind of crazy that the Ovaltine played such a big part. (laughs) Right. Right. Like Uh, an inside joke. When he gets hit in the face with a snowball. Uh Uh-huh. I just can't picture anybody else but those sad, giant, pale blue eyes. Right. Well, the the backstory on that one was it took several takes, and the guys who were throwing the snowballs had gotten pretty good at it. <laughs> and so they nailed him hard. And so that take that he got was the one where he was literally upset and crying because it hurts. Getting, I mean, they were, it was the temperatures that they were foaming in ranged from negative 24 to negative 20. I mean, <laughs> It was cold and you're slush getting ball. hit by your fifth or sixth or seventh slush ball in the eye. I'd be crying too. You know what he said when they hit him? <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great moment. That's a great moment. Okay. So listen to this. So Will Wheaton is one of those guys who auditioned for okay. Ralphie. Yeah. The guy who goes on to play Gordy in Stand By Me. Yeah. And then he does the most amazing narration of Ready Player One. Ready Player One. Melinda Dillon got this part because Bob Clark liked her in Close Encounters. She was top billing because of that. It's insane. I mean, Darren McGavin had been around for a while, but his was mostly TV stuff, you know, and character parts. He's in The Natural, too, and that sort of thing. But. He, she was, Melinda Dillon was the top bill. Close Encounters was long ways before this. But here's the name that, re- that really blows me away. Yeah. You ready for this one? Yes. The old man. Yeah. The person that almost became the old man and wanted the part. Yeah. Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Yeah. I knew that. And it would have messed everything up. It really would have. The, the old man is not the, he's not the main character. He is though. He is so important, but he can't be the guy who takes over the show. Right. He has to be the one that is the driving train behind everything. I mean, if you look at it, it's really a movie that's as much about him as anybody else. I mean, Ralphie is watching what's going on with his dad so much of the time. That part was hugely important. And Gene Shepard said there were a lot of famous guys. I'm sure he was thinking of Jack Nicholson, but Darren McGavin was the most important pick for that movie because he could be dad without being somebody who's too big and too right. movie star to be dad. Can someone tell me what kind of a world we live in <laughs> where a man has to fight his furnace and the neighborhood dogs? <laughs> oh, bravo. Awesome. By the way, all of that profanity was completely ad-libbed and he had a lot of trouble not saying actual profane words because they wanted a PG rating. 
So hey, this happened in both movies. That yeah. sort of cartoon gibberish that yeah. they hit yep. in a Christmas story. They Joe Pesci has to do the same thing in Home Alone. Joe Pesci was mad about the script. He like comes, he's like, I can't do the script. And they're like, why not? He goes, because there's no F's in here. And I'm like, what? He's like, listen, that's just how I talk, man. I mean, you did I wouldn't say, you know, hi, Mrs. Johnson, how are you doing? I'd say, hi, Mrs. Effing Johnson, how's your effing day? <laughs> right. You told me that he that's how he reads scripts. If there's missing F words, yeah, he reads them anyway. Yeah, he puts them in himself. <laughs> and so I think what he did with this one is he had to put them in and then take them back out. So you see him wince a few times before a few things. He's trying not to say the F bomb. When he says shoot... <laughs> He says, shoot. It is the most forced non-cuss word you've ever seen. Uh, that's hilarious. I do think the the cartoon profanity, you know, the Looney Tunes-like language that shows up uh-huh. in both of these movies was super funny to me as a kid. And it's still endearing as an adult. Absolutely. I love that I can watch all of these movies at any time with my kids. So one of the other kids that auditioned for the part was a kid named Scott Schwartz. Right. Who had come out with a movie just before this called The Toy mm-hmm. with Mr. Richard Pryor right. and Mr. Jackie Gleason. Yeah. I mean, you. I watched The Toy all the time when I was a kid. It's Richard it's, Donner directed it. Yeah, it's a great movie. I mean, I think it was. It was great back in the it 80s was, when I was watching it, it yeah. right? I mean, you remember the painting scene, right? Anyway, so he's this, he's he'd been in hundreds of commercials. He's been in this movie yeah. where he's the main title character yeah, guy. Yeah. And then he auditions for this part and it's not really even an audition. It is it is he goes to meet Bob Clark and Bob Clark's just talking to him and Bob Clark says, "You know what? I had I missed lunch today. You want to go grab a hot dog?" And he's like, "Yeah, I love hot dogs. You know, he's a kid. Of course, that's what he's going to say, right? Hot dog, sure. So they go downstairs. They have a hot dog. They go back upstairs. And he's like, you know, Scott, it's wonderful to meet you. Have a great day. I look forward to talking to you again soon. And so Scott leaves, walks back to his agent's office with his dad. Right. Seven minutes away. I mean, it's literally like down the street. Right. They walk in. She's like, what'd you do? And they said, what what do you mean? And she goes, well, you did something right because you got the part. And he's like, we had a hot dog. I mean, that was it. Wow. But when they send him the script, there's no name on it. He doesn't know that he's playing flick. He just gets a script. And so he's thinking, well, I've just done this big movie. And so first thing he does is he goes and counts all the lines. Of course, that's what you do when you're a kid, right? Right. Right. And so he counts all of Ralphie's lines thinking he's going to be Ralphie. Well, they show up and Bob Clark is like, all right, uh, Peter, you're going to be Ralphie. Scott, you're going to be Flick. Um, RD, you'll be Schwartz. And so he's like, oh, so I'm not Ralphie and I'm not even Schwartz, even though my name is Schwartz. Yeah, really. I'm Flick. Okay, well, all right. And he goes through and he looks at it and he's like, well, at least you get to stick my tongue to the pole. <laughs> that, you know, Scott Schwartz went on to have sort of a rough 90s and early 2000s. It was a colorful career. Yeah. Yeah. He was acting. He was a guy from Jersey doing what he can to make the ends meet. Oh my gosh. He uh did some of the some of the adult movies. I haven't seen any of this. No. Let's, he's, doing, let's, he's doing much better. One other thing I want to mention, mm-hmm. Teddy Moore, who plays Miss Shields. Yes. She was eight months pregnant when they filmed this. Oh wow. Okay. 
So in order for her to be Miss Shields, they didn't want to show an unmarried mother in the late 30s, early 40s. Right. And so what they did is they just bulked her up and made her chunky. So she wasn't that she's heavy. Not, she's not big. Oh, wow. That so. is, that's crazy. Okay, so that's a Christmas story. Let's move on to casting for Home Alone. Rocking around the Christmas tree at the Christmas party hop. Now, I know, as we mentioned, John Hughes had directed Uncle Buck and had this young star in Uncle Buck, who's really kind of a side character, but he really did some amazing work with John Candy, kid named Macaulay Culkin. And so he thinks, I wonder if I could write a movie with a nine-year-old as the main character. Right. And that really is how the script for Home Alone came to be. So there's two scenes from Uncle Buck that got us Home Alone and got us specifically Macaulay Culkin. Yeah. Okay. So there's the scene at the beginning with John Candy when he's quizzing him with questions. It's a fantastic scene. Where do you live? In the city. Do you have a house? Apartment. On a rent? Rent. What do you do for a living? Lots of things. Where's your office? I don't have one. How come? I don't need one. Where's your wife? Don't have one. How come? It's a long story. Do you have kids? No, I don't. How come? It's an even longer story. Are you my dad's brother? What's your record for consecutive questions asked? 38. I'm your dad's brother, all right. You have much more hair on your nose than my dad. How nice of you to notice. I'm a kid. That's my job. You got much more hair on your nose than my dad. (laughs) How nice of you to notice. I'm a kid. That's my job, right? Right. Laugh out loud moment in Uncle Buck. Yeah. But then there's a scene where Uncle Buck has to go chase after the oldest daughter in the family. And he has to leave the kids there at home until Shanice can come over. Home alone? He's home alone. Oh. He's home alone. And there's a funny scene where he's sitting right by the door and he's talking to her through the mail chute. Yeah. It's super cute. And he asks her to get her license out so he can verify that it's her. <laughs> right. Right. And uh, he actually peeks out the, the mail chute at one point and sees three bad guys. It's like, <gasps> it's really cute. <laughs> that scene uh, gave us home alone. Yeah. It's incredible. It's great. So you're right. Macaulay Culkin was the one and really only Kevin McAllister. Right. John Hughes wanted him. But they did bring in other people to look at. Right. Okay. In fact, the kid who played the neighbor. The annoying neighbor neighbor, kid. Yeah. Right. What's the gas mileage on this car? Go away, kid. Is it cold in France (laughs) right now? That kid uh, auditioned for the role of Kevin McAllister. So I saw that kid and I'm like, I know that kid from somewhere. Yeah. It's Overboard. He's one of the, the three sons in Overboard. One of the kids that gets poison ivy? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Mitch Murphy. Yeah. Jeffrey Wiseman. Okay. Yeah. Now then, Harry and Marv. Right. Okay. Big list here. So Marv was like the sidekick to Joe Pesci's character, right? Right, right. Christopher Lloyd was looked at to be Marv. I can see that. Tim Robbins was considered to be the role of Marv. Can also see that. Right. You need him tall and skinny to Joe Pesci's sort of. Yep. Short and plump. It's the whole thumb pinky theory. <laughs> the thumb pinky theory. Huh? I would say give credit to my roommate in college, Clay Yoakum, for that one. I was. It, you see how many times you've got a short, fat guy next to a tall, thin guy? It's yeah. the whole thumb pinky theory. So that role eventually went to a guy named Daniel Roebuck. 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 Not Stern. Not Stern. We'll come back to Daniel Roebuck. Okay. So Harry, he's the main burglar. He's like the lead burglar. This is... Joe Pesci's character. Right. Okay. So here are the names. You ready for this? Yep. Okay. We are talking about John Lovitz, Rowan Atkinson, Bob Hoskins, 
Danny DeVito. Yeah, all short and plump. Robert De Niro. Am I wrong? Robert De Niro is a little too tall, I think. Right. Kevin Pollack. That's right. Yeah, because Chris Columbus loved Raging Bull. And so he wanted Robert De Niro. And then it was like, no, but what's Joe Pesci doing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here are the two names that blew me away, though. Okay. For the role of Harry. Dudley Moore. Okay. And Phil Collins. Honestly, I can see both of those. I, I could see it with the little British accent and the silliness. And, you know, Phil Collins was Buster, I guess. So who knows? Maybe. Okay. All right. We want to talk about the McAllisters real quick. Sure. All right. Kate McAllister, the casting director, had been involved with Beetlejuice. Ah. So she loved Catherine O'Hara. Right. And she knew she was super funny. Come on! Yes. And so she was kind of a shoe in. Yeah. But the one name that they considered, Christy Alley. Hmm. Okay. Too pretty back in 1990, I think. She's kind of a babe. Yeah. Yeah. Not mom material at that point, yeah. I think. Can you see Kirstie Alley? Kevin! <laughs> Maybe. Okay. Yeah. So then the next role to fill is Peter McAllister. Okay. That's the dad. Yeah. That role went to John Hurt. Yeah. Which you mentioned Black Christmas a few minutes ago. Yeah. Starring Margot Kidder. Also the star of Superman 1, 2, 3, 4. Margot Kidder and John Hurt. We're married in the 70s. Oh, yeah, that's right. For a glorious six days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. He figured out she was nutso in yeah. less than a week. Yeah. So anyway, I thought that was fun. Yeah. Okay. So that role considered for the people. I mean, you've got big names like Michael Douglas, Kevin Costner, Martin Sheen, Dan Aykroyd, Charles Grodin, who ended up playing the old man in the sequel to Christmas Story. John Travolta, Tom Skerritt. I mean, these names, Steve Martin. But here's the problem. Yes. As we mentioned before, this movie had to get made for $10 million. Exactly. We couldn't have a movie that had these guys in it. They were too expensive. And at this point, Joe Pesci was not that expensive and Daniel Roebuck. Daniel Roebuck. But the chemistry between Daniel Roebuck and Joe Pesci was not good. Okay. So here's the deal with that. Yeah. They, Joe Pesci went to the producers. And he's like, I don't think the chemistry is there with this guy. They had shot one scene. Yeah. They hadn't really worked together. Right. Daniel Roebuck is still bitter about this whole process. Oh, yeah. And who wouldn't be? Right. It, I mean, it's one of the biggest hits of the decade. And Daniel Stern had quit. He quits. Okay. We need to talk about that. Okay, go. Daniel Stern was hired for six weeks worth of work. Yep. And then they came back to him and said, well, it's going to be eight weeks. Uh -huh. He's like, okay, no problem. So do I get paid for eight weeks or just still six weeks? And they're like, no, just six weeks. He's like, well, that's bull crap. I'm not working for eight weeks on six weeks worth of pay. Right. So he quit. He quit. He bailed. You almost didn't have Daniel Stern in this movie. <laughs> I Every time I see Daniel Stern, I see an iron imprint on his face. You know? Right. But fortunately, he wised up. So when they let go of Daniel Roebuck, yep. they called Daniel Stern. Yep. And Daniel Stern's like, ah, oh, man, yeah, no problem. Let's, let's do this. Right. Just a couple more tidbits for you. The role of Uncle Frank, the jerk uncle. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Look what you did, you little jerk. <laughs> so something interesting was... I found out he was originally written to be the master villain behind this whole home invasion plot. Oh. The original script had him as the guy that was bringing these burglars in oh. and setting the whole thing in motion. Wow. Okay. So we hate him anyway. Yeah. 
So that role was written for Kelsey Grammer. Really? Kelsey Grammer. Okay. That's okay. interesting. Okay. All right. Cool. Kind of interesting. And then just the only other thing I want to mention is Kevin's cousin Fuller, the one he's worried about wetting the bed. That's his actual brother, Kieran Culkin. Right. Who played Ralphie in the sequel to A Christmas Story. Oh, yeah. What was that called? A Summer Story. Yeah. Right. They had a few. Yeah. They had a few sequels and they even had A Christmas Story 2. I wanted to watch this before we came in here. I put it on you. I, I texted you. Uh, and you I challenged said, me. <laughs> this movie exists. You watch every crappy movie that is somehow related to a movie. You watched Under the Cherry Moon. I watched Under the Cherry Moon. I, I could barely make it through the trailer of A Christmas Story Part 2. Right. It It is one of the worst rated movies I've ever seen. Like it's like a 1.5 <laughs> or 4 or something on IMDb. They don't get that bad. I mean, you can't rate it a zero. That means every <laughs> Everybody rates it a one. Yeah. You had one guy out there who put two. <laughs> and do you know who plays the dad in that movie? Who? Daniel Stern. Whoa. So there you go. There's our crossover. Wow. There's our bridge. That is awesome. Uh, one more quick thing. Yes. Alan Rickman was considered for the role of Harry. Wow. Alan Rickman, who played, of course, Hans, Hans Gruber. Gruber in Die Hard, who also starred Macaulay Culkin's aunt, Bonnie Bedelia, who played... Holly freaking Gennaro. There you go. All ties together. Okay. Let's move into production. Okay. So these masterful movies are seeing gold followed by seeing gold. I mean, they just don't really, there are no throwaway parts. You don't walk away unless it's, you know, you know, you're going to catch it again in the next two hours because it's Christmas day and it's on TNT, but it is solid gold from beginning to end on both of these movies. Right. Without question. One of the most memorable scenes in A Christmas Story is sticking the tongue to the pole. I triple dog serious. Right? It is. Okay. So the way that they worked that out, the special effects, way that they worked out, remember this is a low budget movie. They hooked up a vacuum cleaner. (laughs) They hooked up a vacuum into a pole, right? And painted it. And you see, he always comes in from the side and there's a little tiny hole that they had in this pole. And so the vacuum would start and the suction would pull that tongue. So he could actually pull away and his tongue would stay stuck. Well, it's the first time they've ever tried something like this. So the first time that they did it, it literally sucked his face onto the pole. <laughs> like he put his tongue on it and sucked his whole mouth in. Like, you know, like, oh, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. And so they reduced the power a little bit, got it to where just his tongue would stick on there. And then they filmed it and it took 12 and a half hours to film that scene. What? They were filming in the cold. I mean, I told you, negative 24 to negative 20 is, is where we were. You can see the kids' breaths. Yes. They were wearing period clothing. So there was no lining in the gloves. I mean, they had little electric socks and electric warmers that they stuck on them, but these kids were freezing their butts off (laughs) and he had to shoot for 12 and a half hours. Wow. Then they take the film and they underdevelop it. And he has to call him back and say, Scott, we got to shoot that scene again. He's like... So got good news. You get to film some more and bad news. It's the, and so they really improved. And the second time they shot it, they get it done in 11 and a half hours. Oh my gosh. And at one point, no kidding. 
they broke for lunch and as a joke all of the other actors left and he was still stuck to the wall <laughs> and he was like wait guys wait and they just don't leave, leave me guys it. come back <laughs> please don't leave me guys don't leave me <laughs> I've always wondered how that worked because yeah. it's clear as day that his tongue is stuck to that pole. Oh yeah. You know, but uh, you're right. You never see it straight on. It's always to the side. Right. Arms are flailing. God, that, that scene is so funny. When the teacher is like, where's Flick? And they're like, Flick? Flick who? <laughs> <laughs> and then she comes back and gives him the guilt trip. Adults always say that <laughs> stuff, but kids know it's always better not to get caught. I'm sure the guilt you feel. <laughs> It's far worse than any punishment. Yeah, I love that that scene. So funny. Let's talk about Scott Fargus for a second. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not Scott. No. I thought it was Scott. For the longest time, I also thought it was Scott, but it's Scott with a U. Yes. Yes. Farkas. So help me yellow eyes. <laughs> I love that that line. He does not have yellow eyes. No, but people are sure that he does. People will meet him on the street and, they, and they're like, I remember your yellow eyes. He's like, I, they were, they were right. Yellow. And they're right. like, I remember it. Okay, then. <laughs> what a great bully, though, you know? Oh, fantastic. When he's got he's got that laugh and they like freeze on their tracks, you know? I got I to gotta say that moment is the top moment in the whole movie for me because it is like it's so emotionally packed. Ralphie has just gotten his C plus on the theme <laughs> that he thought he was going to get an A plus, 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 plus. Right. Even with his bribe of the big basket of fruit, he still gets a C plus. C plus. <laughs> C plus. Y'all shoot your eye. So uh, he's he's absolutely devastated. Walking home alone, doesn't even bother to walk home with his friends. Right. And gets that snowball in the face. And he's the only kid that we don't actually see bullied. Like they get Schwartz, they get Flick. But you don't see this, but it's that moment. The tears are true and real and the rage is real. And you see him give it back to a bully. And I mean, like heartstrings, I'm like, yeah, give it back. And then- Hit him again, Ralphie. <laughs> and then when you think that the dad is going to destroy him, dad's gonna kill Ralphie. <laughs> Daddy will not kill Ralphie. And the mom so subtly, oh, Ralphie got in a fight today. What? Oh, I saw that the the bears. Yeah. And points it out, gives him the light touch. Things were different between me and mom after that. Yeah. Great scene. Ah, I love it. I want to point out something else too. Okay. Yeah. Let's give it up for our man Flick. Okay. Uh Yeah. Who sacrifices himself for the best, (laughs) the betterment of the, of the group. Right. Uh, Right. They're like, you come here. And he's like, uncle, 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 uncle. He's already saying uncle. Uncle! (laughs) Right? And poor Randy's laying there like a slug. You know, (laughs) they go grab him and get up and they leave. But yeah. Flick is only defense. (laughs) (laughs) Flick comes to the rescue of everybody else. Yeah. Hey, I was going to mention one other thing uh, about the tongue, the tongue pole thing. So because of this scene, a bunch of kids tried this. And learn the hard way that this really works. Yeah. Your tongue will stick. Yeah. To railroad ties, to light poles, to if it's cold enough, your tongue's sticking. Yeah. Don't try this at home, kids. If you didn't learn it from a Christmas story, you should have learned it from a Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> call somebody call the fire department. <laughs> dumb and Dumber. Oh, look, snow. <laughs> this movie, as much as it is little vignettes that are strung together by the idea that this needs to, you know, that he has to get this Red Rider BB gun. You've got little orphan Annie and the decoder pen. Drink, be sure and drink your Ovaltine. And you've got 
the lamp and you've got the changing of the tire. Oh, fudge. <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't, didn't say fudge. All of these brilliant little vignettes that lead along, but it's all really about his relationship with his dad and his dad who seems to not care unless the kids are annoying him, you know, and is always frustrated and angry. And then in the end, he's the one who surprises him and mom by getting him the red rider. He's been listening the whole time. He's the only one that he didn't ask. Right. He never asked his dad. Right. He asked Santa. He asked his teacher. He asked his mom. Right. He even snuck the advertisement inside the Life magazine to catch him unaware. Dad comes through. Yeah. Love it. Okay, D, we've got a Shirley Showcase this week from one of my best buddies from high school. His name is Chris Bauer. We used to call him Bomber all the time. He got me in trouble all the time in Sunday school. He's one of those guys that could make me laugh. I mean, I just cracked me up all the time. Is this a guy that like hit you in the head with the cassette tape? <laughs> yes. Yes. Same guy. Yes. <laughs> okay. All in right. the middle of New Mexico, I'm asleep and he whacked me in the forehead with the ACDC back and black tape. Yes. There you go. <laughs> worth, the, worth the pain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, here's what he had to say. He's weighing in on Young Guns, Young Guns 2, and Tombstone, the episode we did here in September, October. Hey, guys. It's Chris Bauer, or as Jason refers to me as Bomber. I'm here to give my final judgment on the Tombstone Young Guns, Young Guns 2 podcast. I'm judging these movies on three criteria or abilities. Rewatchability, quotability, and overall entertainability, which includes two important sub-abilities, recommendability and pausability. On rewatchability, this is a dead heat between Tombstone and Young Guns. Either of these comes on and I'm busy for the next hour and 47 minutes to two hours and 10 minutes. Yep, for Young Guns 2, I'm surfing my way through the channel guide and coming back to it if I don't find anything else. Next, quotability. All three are filled with great one-liners and phrases, but I had to narrow this down to those I regularly drop on my wife and kids. While, Junior, you back that queen again and I'll blow you straight up that wildcat's arse is poetic Hall of Fame material, it doesn't mesh well in everyday scenarios like, we've come to a place where an Indian is lost. And when an Indian is lost, he turns to the spirit world, does. Which I have used on many occasions, such as walking into Costco or listening to my daughter tell me what happened at school that day. So for this ability, the belted Earl has spoken. And I'm giving it to Young Guns with Tombstone and Young Guns 2 coming in a very close second and third. Finally, entertainability. Like I said earlier, this one includes two other very important abilities recommendability and pausability all three on their own are what i consider entertaining and recommendability is high for all of them as for pausability i could leave young guns 2 at any point and go do whatever errand or chore is required of me at that time and be okay with tombstone i would probably have to wait until the wyatt and josie horse chase scene or any of the wyatt and maddie scenes to pause and tend to my obligations but young guns It's only 147 minutes, and when whatever is required of me rears its ugly head, I'm probably 20 to 60 minutes into the movie already anyway, so it can wait until I watch Murphy reap the whirlwind and hear Doc say, the epitaph read only one word, pals. So with all that being said, my final judgment goes Young Guns number one, followed almost instantly by Tombstone in second, 
and Young Guns number two being the red-ass Mexican greaser who does it with his horse. Thanks, guys, for putting on a great podcast, which I look forward to every week. And buenos tardes, amigos. All right, that was hilarious. Uh, <laughs> that was awesome. I absolutely love that take. Um, I, I obviously I disagree, and I put Tombstone one, but I cannot fault him for his logic. Those love scenes are a big ugly eyesore in the middle of an otherwise perfect movie. Yeah, I think he and I saw Young Men's two in the theater together, and oh, nice. Uh, I think we were actually kind of singing "Blaze of Glory" during the closing <laughs> credits. So. Awesome. Chris, thanks so much, man. Always good to hear from you and uh, stay out of trouble. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Okay. So that's going to do it for part one of our Home Alone versus a Christmas story episode. And I think we're actually going to drop our second or part two of this. Not not a full week away. No, we're going to we're going to try to get it up here in a couple of days so that we get it in before Christmas. You guys be sure and hit subscribe or follow if you haven't already so that you catch that second part of this episode. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.